Father in heaven, I'm thankful this morning that your glory does not depend upon us. That you are glorious regardless of what we say and do and think. That you are high and lifted up and above us. You're transcendent over all things. You're holy in every way. And whether we worship you or not, you will remain so. That God, as your children, we want to be involved in glorifying you. We not only want to taste and see your glory, but we want to attribute to you more glory. We not only want to see you exalted, but we want to be exalting you. And so we ask for your help in doing that today, even now. As we listen, as we submit our hearts and our minds to your spirit this morning, as we let your word engage our conscience and our minds and call us to repentance and call us to faith and call us to adoration and devotion and thankfulness. Let us know, God, that we have a part to play in listening. That it's very important for us to hear from you and your word. That it's very important for your word to be applied to our lives. We pray and we ask that in these things and in helping us listen to your word and to you, you would be glorified. That this morning we would play a part in exalting you by submitting ourselves to you. We need you, O God, to confront our apathy, to confront our traditions, to confront our religion, to confront our lack of understanding to confront our sin, to confront our neglect, and to do so with the weight of Your holy, glorious presence that we might be corrected, that we might be conformed, that we might be transformed, that we might be saved out of captivity. And so it's in your name, Jesus, we ask for your blessing on this time. Amen. I invite you, please take your Bibles with me and open them to the New Testament letter of Hebrews. New Testament letter or book of Hebrews towards the latter portion of the New Testament, the latter half of the New Testament. If you have come to first or second Peter or first or second or third John Back it up, go to the left until you come to Hebrews. If you're in Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, the Thessalonians or Timothys or anything like that, keep going to your right. Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. 
as we do what most churches in the world are doing right now, considering the coming of our Savior. But let me say at the beginning here, it uh, is much more, the coming of our Lord is much more than just a virgin birth or a humble birth, although those things are certainly important. Rather, for us, as we consider the coming of Christ, we ought to consider the whole broader incarnation, uh, which encompasses the very purposes of Christ's coming. If we stop short of considering such things, uh, then we have really missed the mark. If we only come to the Christmas season and consider the virgin birth and the manger and the animals and the nativity and things like that, uh, we've really missed the point. We only consider the birth so far as it helps us consider the overall purpose of Christ coming to earth for sinners. In other words, we are tempted during this time of year to get the how in front of the why. We consider how Christ came to the detriment of considering why Christ came. Why did Jesus come to humanity in the first place? So yes, let us consider the how, but never to the detriment or neglect of considering the why. In fact, we ought to often consider the why before we consider the how. Why did God deem it necessary in His own heart to enter into creation as a human being to act on behalf of human beings? Once we establish that, then we might further understand the how of Christ coming into this world. Well, that's what we begin to look at in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, or what I hope to draw out of the text this morning, what I think the text is getting at this morning. It forces us to consider the why in connection with the how, but it minimizes the how so that it might emphasize the why. If you look into chapter 2, verse 10, we're kind of entering into the middle of the thought um, of this author of Hebrews in this chapter. But verse 10 tells us the main point that the author is getting at. Let's read verse 10. For it was fitting that He, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, should make Him perfect through suffering. That word perfect doesn't necessarily refer to quality or um, faultlessness. It refers to fitness. That He should make the founder of salvation fit to be the founder of salvation through suffering. But the main point of what he's getting at in chapter 2 really is that phrase, bringing many sons to glory. It's the heart of God to save sinners. It's the delight and the desire of the Father to send His Son so that He might bring many sons and daughters, many people to glory. It's a wonderful transformation that God brings about. Entering into creation for sinful creatures such as you and I who have rebelled against God and rejected His will and His law 
And yet God, through the work of His Son, through the suffering of the founder of salvation, would transform us and take us from those rebels to sons and daughters of glory. So as we consider our text today, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, we should have that uh, theme or that understanding as the foundation or underlying reality that in coming to earth, God was bringing many sons to glory. God was desiring the redemption of the lost. Most of us know this, but it is good for us to hear it often. Christ came to make a way to God for sinful humanity who comes to Him in faith. That's the whole point, the whole purpose of Christ being born. Let's look now in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, and we'll read through verse 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verses 14 through 16, we'll consider the why, the why of the coming of Christ, the way that God brings many sons to glory, And we begin with this reference in verse 14 to the children. The children are those people, if you back up into verse 11, who are sanctified by the one who sanctifies. They are the ones who uh, are being brought to glory by God. The people who uh, know the salvation that this founder of salvation has to offer and has to bring. Those are the, the children of verse 14. And they are people, human beings, who share in flesh and blood. A most basic description of humanity. It's a limited description. It's not comprehensive. It refers to those basic biological elements that make us who we are. We're flesh and bone. We're flesh and blood. That is fundamentally who we are as men and women, as human beings. That is the one thing that we all have in common. Our personalities might be different. Our perspectives might be different. Our upbringings might be different. On and on and on and on. But one thing we all have in common is that we are flesh and blood. The children are flesh and blood. Verse 16 emphasizes this point even more. It's not angels that He helps, but the offspring of Abraham. We're talking about, we're referencing, we're thinking about humanity. And in verse 14, these children that share in flesh and blood were told that our Lord, He Himself, likewise 
partook of the same things. He likewise partook of flesh and blood. Just as the children that God desires to bring to glory are of flesh and blood, the Savior became flesh and blood. That word partook implies becoming, which implies that it wasn't always the case, but that now He is sharing in the same basic nature and elements of humanity. The word partook could also be translated participate. He participates in the same things, flesh and blood. In other words, Jesus adorned humanity so that He might represent humanity and act on their behalf. The coming of our Savior, entering into creation, being born in, in the likeness of humanity, being found humbled in human form, is not just some secondary issue that God accomplished. It is the necessary requirement for humanity to be saved. Christ is made like those whom He wants to redeem because that is the only way they can be redeemed. Christ is made like sinful humanity only without sin. He's made flesh and blood because that is the only way flesh and blood can be made right with God. It's the necessary requirement if our Savior is going to act on our behalf and represent us before God. So we start here with the incarnation. The people that God wants to save. The people that God wants to bring to glory. The flesh and blood of this earth. Christ participated in the very same things. We're told why in verse 14. So that through death, He might accomplish two things, really. Destruction and deliverance. Through death, He would, dis he would accomplish destruction and deliverance. Christ, our Savior, took on flesh and blood to die. Born to die. You and I aren't in control of our births. We weren't in control of our birth. If we were, I doubt any of us would be born explicitly to die. But that is certainly what our Savior did. In control of His own circumstances, in control of His own birth, and in control of His own purposes, He was literally born to die. He accomplishes these purposes of destruction and deliverance through, we're told, verse 14, His own death. He adorns humanity to represent humanity, to take on flesh and blood, to die for humanity, to die as a human being. If men and women were to be liberated from sin, if they were to be liberated from death, then Christ must die on their behalf. 
as one of them in their place. The very fact that Jesus likewise partook of the same things, that he likewise participated in flesh and blood, is what makes him our eligible substitute. The requirement for humanity to be redeemed is that one would die. Back up into verse 9 of chapter 2. This has already been referenced in the chapter. Verse 9 says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Again, that's not universal. That's not everyone who's ever lived. That's everyone who is under this salvation that he has founded. He has tasted death for you and I that he might be the founder of our salvation. That's exactly what we looked at last week in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God's pronouncing the curse on the serpent. And he says, He will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. The bruising of the heel of the seed of woman is the very suffering that we're reading about. The death of the one who came to die. The death of the one who took on flesh and blood that he might die. This is his suffering. The liberation of humanity is not without a cost. is not without a price. And the price was met by Christ. What we're about to read in the rest of verse 14 and verse 15 is only possible if Jesus first gives up his life on our behalf. If Jesus first goes to the cross in our stead and takes our penalty and punishment for us. I want to give you two thoughts at this point, two thoughts that I think when rightly understood... should both increase your adoration and your thanksgiving and even lead to further devotion. But the first thought being this, verse 14, the sequence is telling us that God, fully aware of what the cost was, took on flesh anyways. He partook of the same things so that through death He might accomplish His purposes. Isn't it a wondrous, glorious, humbling thought that the all-knowing God knew what lay ahead for Him and came anyways? Isn't it a humbling thought That the God who has existed from eternity past knew the details of the cross and still partook of flesh and blood. Still became man. It most certainly is. Our infinite and glorious, majestic and powerful God was not surprised that His purpose could only be accomplished through death. In fact, and this is the second thought, it's even more than that. It's even more than, than the fact that he knew death was on the horizon and came anyways. It's really the fact 
that he knew death was the requirement and that is why he came in the first place. It's not just that death was there and he came in spite of it. It's death was there and he came because of it. The price was too high for you and I to pay. The cost was too much. And we were spiritually bankrupt. Our debt was infinite and we had no money in our pockets. Our debt extended far beyond our means of restoration and paying back. So no amount of work, no amount of morality, no amount of goodwill or good efforts would ever pay back. The penalty. Christ didn't come in spite of the death that He would suffer on the cross. Christ came and took on flesh and blood because death on the cross was the required payment and you and I couldn't afford it. Christ took on humanity because humanity needed to atone for their own sin and humanity couldn't atone for their own sin. Our Lord volunteered to pay the price we couldn't pay. So it's not just that Jesus looked into the future and saw the cross and what lay ahead for him and said, I'm going to go for them anyways. It's that he looked into the future, saw the cross and what lay ahead and said, that's why I'm going. To pay the price they cannot pay. So that through his death, he would accomplish these two things. Number one, in verse 14, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. His first purpose is a purpose of conquesting victory, of destruction. We might say he destroys two things in verse 14, both the power of death and the devil himself. Now, I had the question in studying, and I hope you have the question. What does it mean that the devil has the power of death? After all, wasn't death instituted by God as a curse for sin? Yes, it was. We read it last week in Genesis chapter 3. So what does it mean that our enemy, Satan, might have the power of death? Well, let me tell you a few things of what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean that Satan possesses something which God does not possess. It doesn't mean that there's remotely anything in in the universe that Satan has ownership over and God doesn't. God is sovereign. Even Satan himself is subject to the ownership and rule and control of God. It also doesn't mean that Satan has control over death and God does not. As if he is the one who causes people to die or dispenses death at his own will. It also doesn't mean that Satan can wield death as a weapon against God or against the plan of God. And finally, most importantly, I would say, because there seems to be confusion about this. When the author of Hebrews writes that Jesus destroys the one who has the power over death... He does not mean that Jesus has to pay a ransom to Satan to redeem us. He doesn't mean that Jesus has to satisfy the demands of Satan. 
he doesn't mean that Jesus has to win a battle against Satan. This is not a good versus evil statement. This is not a spiritual warfare between two equal powers. Jesus isn't buying humanity back from Satan. So what does he mean? What does this statement mean? I think it means two things that Satan uses in regards to or connection to death to attack not God, but humanity. First is the permanence of death. And second is the accusation of sin. The permanence of death means that he would threaten humanity with a permanent separation from God. If our enemy could usher a lost soul to death, then they are lost for all eternity. And make no mistake, this tempter who lies to you and cozies up to you and, and tries to get you to follow his, his desires and temptations, he would have nothing less than your eternal demise. He would love nothing more than to have you thrust under the wrath of a loving God. He would love nothing more than to shepherd you to eternal separation from God. But along those lines, he has the accusation of sin, perhaps the most powerful tool that he employs as he stands before God and often before us, accusing us of our sinfulness. And this might be the most powerful weapon he employs because it's actually true, isn't it? He stands before God and he stands before us in our conscience, accusing us of how wicked and depraved and vile and sinful we actually are. And he recounts over and over before the throne of God your rightful reward of punishment and destruction. And he reminds you and I so often that that is what we rightfully deserve, is it not? Punishment and destruction. We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve to be eternally punished for our sin. And we have an active enemy who will not hesitate in bringing up such truths before us. The good news of verse 14 is that this Savior who took on flesh and blood, through His death, He destroyed this great enemy and the power of death that He uses against us. Which means that for the Christian, death is not permanent. Separation from God is not a reality for those of us born again. And the accusations that our enemy lobs our way continually, well, thanks to Christ through His death, dying on behalf of you and I, they're unfounded accusations. They inflict no damage upon us before God. They're true, but harmless. Why is that? Because Jesus came in victory. Because through His death, 
our Savior who died as a man won victory. He conquered. And He destroyed the enemy who wages war against us. The second purpose He accomplishes is in verse 15. And that's the purpose of deliverance. He delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He delivers because He's destroyed the one who has the power of death. He's destroyed the power of death itself. 1 Corinthians 15, death therefore has no more sting upon us. And so we are thereby delivered from the sting of death and delivered from the captivity of death and delivered from the one who would usher us to eternal separation from God. What, what is verse 15 saying? It's saying and it's screaming to us, freedom and liberty. That which ominously hung over our head as rightful condemnation, eternal separation from God, that which plagued our conscience and plagued our thought and haunted our souls is now no longer an enemy or a captive or a captor. It is now a gift. It is now the gate to glory. It is now the doorway we walk through with joy. Why? Because our Savior has made it so. Our Savior has walked through death before us. And He's come out on the other side in victory. So that now God would take that which, that which would destroy us and He makes it that which brings us to glory. We are promised a resurrection in Christ. Every single one of us who are born again are promised a future resurrection. But you will not be resurrected if you do not first walk through the gate of death. And in that light, death is not an enemy anymore. It is a gift. It is what brings us to glory. And it is only a gift because our Savior died as one of us in our place, destroying death and delivering us from death. Very quickly, verse 17 and verse 18, let's consider how he did this. Again, we didn't want to get the why before the how, so the why he came is that he might die and in dying destroy the devil and the power of death and deliver us uh, from the fear and slavery of death and give us freedom and life and liberty in him. How has he accomplished this? Verse 17 tells us, Therefore, because he helps the offspring of Abraham, because he uh, had the purpose of destroying and delivering, therefore, he had to be made like his brother's in every respect. There's the, the necessary requirement word there in verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers. It was the necessary requirement. There was no other option. There was no other way. He had to become like one of us. 
But unlike verse 14, verse 17 is more comprehensive. Where verse 14 uh, issues forth the limited statement, flesh and blood, referring to basic biology and elements. Verse 17 uses this phrase, made like his brothers in every respect. That carries with it a, a more experiential understanding. He experienced humanity in its fullness and in every way yet without sin which means the eternal almighty god subjected himself if we looked at philippians 2 humbled himself subjected himself to things like hunger and exhaustion and joy and sorrow he subjected himself to the experience of an average individual. He knows what it's like to grow up as a child in this world. He knows what it's like to live as a teenager. To become an adult. To have the pressures of society. He knows what it's like to provide for your family. To watch your loved ones argue. To be in less than desirous company. To interact with other human beings. He has witnessed wickedness firsthand. Been rejected by his family. Likely experienced the loss of a loved one. On and on and on and on. Our Savior entered into humanity not just on a biological level, but in every respect He experienced the fullness of humanity yet without sin. And verse 17 tells us why. So that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. We learn there of his attributes, we learn of his um, office, and we learn of his allegiance in that statement. His attributes are mercy and faithfulness. Christ took on flesh to become a merciful and faithful high priest. His office is that of high priest to act on our behalf before God. To intercede for us and mediate for us. And to make the way to God accessible. And His allegiance is the service of God. He became merciful and faithful as a high priest in service to God. In everything that Christ did, He did it first in obedience and for the glory of God. And then secondly for us. In fact, we might even say the only way and only reason Christ died on the cross for us or loved us is because it primarily glorified God. His service was to God. But in His service to God, He glorifies Him by doing two more things. Real quick. Number one, by making propitiation for the sins of the people. 
How does he destroy death? How does he deliver? How does he bring many sons to glory through destroying death, through delivering us from death? It's by first making propitiation for the sins of the people. You know that that word is one of my favorite words. It's a word that means appeasement or satisfy. And here we see that Christ isn't paying a ransom to Satan. His death is paying the penalty to God. He's not satisfying the demands of the devil. He satisfies the just demands of a holy God who calls to account every transgression as a righteous judge. Not one sin will go neglected by God. Not one transgression will go unnoticed. Not one moment, one motive, one thought, one word, one act of disobedience will ever go unpunished by just God. And so that either means you are punished yourself for them or Christ was punished for you for them. Every sin is accounted for. And God's just demand to make every sin accounted for is the reason Christ went to the cross to to satisfy that righteous, just, good demand. No judge worth his weight or her weight dismisses guilt. Guilt has to be dealt with. Christ, in satisfying the demand of God, deals with our guilt. That statement, make propitiation for the sins of the people, it tells us who we are and what must happen. It tells us we are sinful people. Each and every one of us have sin in our heart, sin at the core of who we are, sin that we commit each and every day. And it tells us what must happen. It must be dealt with. So Christ, Deals with it for us. Satisfying God's justice. He earns the wage for sin. Romans 6.23 He pays the penalty. Colossians 2 He pays our debt, nailing it to the cross. Without Christ, we have no way to satisfy the rightful wrath of God. But through Christ, we have eternal pardon. Through Christ, we have statements like Romans 8.1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ as a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God, satisfied the wrath of God for sinful people by being made like His brothers in every respect and dying on their behalf to destroy death and deliver sinful people. Death, as an eternal separation from God, is only reserved for those who are still in their sins. But if one has died for your sins and removed their consequence, well now we see how He destroyed death. How He removed its sting. 
It's no longer for us. The second thing we see Christ do in verse 18. Is now he helps those who are being tempted. Because he himself has suffered when tempted. In other words, he helps us to walk the path of obedience and righteousness with God. Not only does he atone for our sin, but he helps us stay out of further sin. Not only does he please God's demand and justify us legally before God, but he helps us through sanctification continue to walk before God. He liberates us not only from the consequence of death, but the continued Captivity of sin. Christ walks with you. Christ enables you to overcome. Christ provides a solution. Christ provides the way out. We are so tempted to behave like our parents, Adam and Eve. When we sin, we want to run and hide among the bushes, among the trees of the garden to avoid God's presence. The scriptures tell us as Christians in Christ, when we sin or when we're tempted to sin, we don't run from God. We run to the only one who can help us in our moment of temptation. That is to God. Here is one church who took on flesh and blood, made in every respect like his brothers, so that in dying on their place, in their place to make propitiation for their sins and helping them to avoid sinful living, he might destroy death and deliver them from the slavery of death that ultimately God might bring many sons to glory. The birth of Christ isn't limited to just the how of a virgin birth and a manger and animals and stars and shepherds and things like that. The birth of Christ also points us to the why. That sinful humanity might be redeemed. That Christ might take on flesh to die in your place and in dying in your place deliver you entirely. And in delivering you entirely bring you to the Father in glory. As we celebrate this week. The coming of Christ. Let us celebrate nothing less. Than one who would take on flesh and blood to die. That we might be brought to God. If that's not true of you. And chances are. There are some here that that's not true of. Don't let another Christmas season go by where you're not genuinely born again. One of the greatest 20th century preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote of his conversion. He was in his late 20s. And he was already a reputable doctor in England. He was... Um, in charge of many of his church's programs and ministries. Very faithful to his church's services. He was a member of his church. And he wrote of his time in his 20s and he said. That I was faithful to my church. 
I served in my church. I was a member of my church. And I was a leader in my church. And wholly unconverted. It's not an impossibility that we can celebrate the coming of Christ. That we can think upon the glories of God coming to earth. That we can understand and agree with the nature of Christ coming to earth for sinners and still be wholly unconverted. It's not impossible to know all the right things, to do the right things, to say the right things, to celebrate the right things, to agree with a sermon like this and be entirely unsaved. Be confronted with this reality that if you're not in Christ, the sting of death remains for you. And the deliverance from lifelong slavery is not yours. And propitiation for your sins, satisfaction before a holy God for your sins is not true for you. These things we've talked about are only true for those who are born again in Christ. Who have placed their faith in Jesus. And been saved. So you as a listener have only one of two options to respond this morning. If you are by God's infinite grace and mercy. Pricked within your soul and conscience. To realize you're not a Christian. Then your response is to come in faith today and be saved. But you this morning who are assured by God's grace that you are born again. Your response should be one of gratitude and humble adoration before God. That produces within you a sincere zeal and devotion for the glory of God. And you ought to seriously examine yourself. To ask, am I still under the power of death? Or have I been liberated by the one who came to destroy death? Jesus, thank you for coming for us. We cannot tell of all your glories. For you are infinite and your worth is infinite. And your glory is Your glory would kill us. It is so magnificent. And yet, we can talk of some of your glories. And we see your glory in the fact that you didn't just come in spite of the cross that lay ahead, but you came exactly for the cross that lay ahead, so that through that cross you might liberate us from death by taking our sin on yourself, And giving us your righteousness. So that in that liberation and with that righteousness, we might be brought to glory with the Father. We thank you. We thank you for taking on flesh for such a purpose. And for such a weak and feeble and sinful people as us. O God of heaven and earth. Prick the heart and conscience of the lost right 
now, please. That they might come before you humbly for salvation. Not waiting for justifying another second of their existence. For death looms over them and the earth might swallow them up any moment. And for your children, let us not be confronted with a text like this and walk away unmoved by it. Let us be confronted with such a love and such a sacrifice that we would renew and, and again lay our lives down before you in total surrender and total submission for your most excellent glory. In your name, Jesus, we pray and ask these things. Amen.